great. Every once in a while, people will ask, okay, so, uh, Ernest, why are you a Baptist? You seem like you're barely Baptist, and you're right. Thank you for noticing. I am barely Baptist. But one of the things that I do really appreciate about uh, Baptist life is the cooperative program and being able to participate together with other churches on a volunteer basis so as to do things that we could not individually as a church do. And this is one of those things, helping with uh, church planting and, and missions uh, we do that locally in this county, we do it in the state, we do it nationally, we do it internationally. And so if you are at all inclined to give to Mary Hill Davis, I want to encourage you to do that. Try to do it today, next week, certainly by the end of the month. Uh, there, how many of you all have heard of G.K. Chesterton? Okay, one of the most quotable Christians probably in history. He was asked one time, if you were on a desert island... You were there all by yourself, and you only had one book. What would that book be? And he said, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. Isn't that, that interesting? See, when you're, when you're stuck and you want to be unstuck, you want to know, how do I get unstuck? If you're in a place you don't want to be and you feel like you're just kind of treading water waiting to die... You want something that's just going to give you help, that's going to give you some teaching, some instruction, some correction, so you can get from where you are to where you want to be, especially if you're not just by yourself, but maybe you're with some friends or you're some family. You're concerned not just about your own salvation, but you're interested in the healing of the entirety of your family. You want more than just a book that's going to entertain you. You want more than just some inspirational quotes. You want help. You want Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. Now, the good news is, if you do feel a little stuck, if you've ever felt like you're in a place in life where you don't want to be, if you've ever felt a little disoriented or lost, we have a book. And as far back as the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, we've been known as the people of the book. And our conviction as people of the book is that this book is from above and that it is profitable for you and for me. And it's not that we aren't sometimes entertained by the stories and it's not that we find it all disinteresting and it's uh, not that there aren't inspirational quotes in it, but I want to tell you what I told the first service, and that is sometimes when I read the Bible, it's worky. You know, it's like you, you think, oh, well, since he's a pastor, he must be reading something that I'm not because this is kind of hard. You know, you might read, read it some days and go, I'm not, I'm not getting too much out of this. Well, you know, probably as an entertainment feature to your life, you don't typically read Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. But that doesn't mean you don't need guidance or correction or training. We go to the Bible sometimes not because we're feeling like it, but because we recognize where we are. We're in a place where we don't need to be, not just literally in the world, but maybe in terms of our heart or in terms of our thinking. We need to move from point A to point B because it is our nature to be isolated. It's our nature to be in a place where we're just sort of dwindling away. It is in our nature to be lost. And I'm not saying that Christians are fundamentally not saved, but we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. There's a progression to your life, and if you are not receiving training, teaching, instruction, correction, rebuke, 
It's like you're choosing to remain on the island. And that's a poor choice, especially when you recognize that God has given you the book. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about the book and its practical usefulness to you and to me. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is a rather familiar text. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and is profitable. There's a benefit. There's a, a use here. Not just learning some stuff. You're actually taking in some stuff that is transformative. It's making a difference. It's profitable for teaching. We need to be taught for rebuking. We need to be called on things for correcting because sometimes we're a little crooked for training in righteousness because you don't become excellent in all you do without training so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God bless reading his word. You may be seated now. Just real quick, let me just mention to you that when the Apostle Paul wrote this, there are two words that he could use for man, so that the man of God. One of the words is anthropos, and that means humanity or a person. You get anthropology, you know, it's the study of human beings, not just the male species of the human race. That's the word that Paul uses, anthropos, person. So it's entirely appropriate to say here, Look, so that the person of God may be complete, you know, you know, equipped for every good work. If Paul ever comes across to you as a little bit chauvinistic, well, I'm sorry, don't blame him all the time. Sometimes it's just the inclinations of the translators not quite getting it, frankly, just telling you. Now, there's another word that he could use. He doesn't use. It's andros, and that means man, like male man. And so, not male man, like delivering the mail. But like the guy who is actually a guy, guy, okay? Andros is the Greek root from which we get the old English word, ernost, which became earnest. And it means manly man. Now, I, okay, y'all already know I made that up. What earnest actually means in the old English is, what's up, Vern? Uh, but anyways, I, I digress. Okay, here, here's the point. Uh, the point is, God gave us his word... From above, inspired, breathed by God, so we would be helped. He wants your life to be better. He wants it different. And, and we need to be te- taught. We need to be corrected. We need to be rebuked. We need to be trained. These are all, these are all okay. And we accept all this stuff as children, right? And we expect our children to expect these things as children. But at some point along the way, we stopped expecting that we needed to be trained and corrected and re- and all of the rest. That's unfortunate that adults get to this point. And I think maybe that's one of the many reasons that we're, taught, that we're told in the Bible that we are the children of God. Your child, he's the father. This is the appropriate disposition that we have toward God. God, teach me. Because there may be things I'm getting wrong. There may be things I'm doing incorrectly. There may be things that I kind of know I'm off on and you need to rebuke me. And sometimes I know that I'm wrong, but I don't know how to straighten out. You you need to correct me. You're the father, I'm the child. That's the disposition of the people toward the book. And I just want to remind us about a few things concerning the book, because starting next week, I'm going to take you to a section of the book that really runs contrary to 
21st century secular dogma. I want to take you to a chapter in the book that talks about sex and sexual expression and gender and boundaries and distinctions and the lack thereof. It's Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I know that some of what gets communicated there is going to rub this culture in the wrong way. And some of it may rub some of you the wrong way in terms of some of the things that you feel. And, you know, I'm sorry, and that's, that's the way it is. Uh, but I know that before we get to this chapter that I think is really important, I want us to get our heads on straight with regards to the book. Because frequently when people, and this includes people inside the church, when people come to the book and they read something that just doesn't resonate with them or they don't agree with, immediately our response when we read some of these things is to go, that's a, that book is so out of touch. That's just ancient garbage. This is why I can't accept the Bible. It's just so backwards. And we will come to the Bible and we will read things, and, and I understand this, and I'm not getting on to anybody, but I'm just saying our, our tendency especially if we think we're progressive and, you know, and mature and evolved and, and woke and everything, is to come across some of these texts and just immediately we become very, very negative and say, this is exactly why I don't like the Bible. It's just, it's so archaic. It's so backwards. And so before we get to Deuteronomy chapter 22, I just wanted to give you a few things to think about with regards to the book and the attitude toward the book. Some things to keep in mind. Let's put the slide up there. The things that you need to keep in mind when you wonder, is the Bible culturally backward? And the the first thing is this. Sometimes, just remember, sometimes we fail to distinguish between what people say the book says and what the book actually says. Okay? Sometimes we have a negative response to the book because we base our ideas or understanding on the book on the misunderstanding of somebody else who taught us the book. And we were instructed incorrectly. It was distorted to us, whether in in terms of the truth or maybe just the tone concerning the truth. I think this is kind of interesting. Over in 2 Peter, uh, Peter just talks about how hard it is to get Paul. I thought this was kind of funny. It, It is comical. He writes, Our dear brother Paul, and their contemporaries, Peter's met Paul, Paul's met Peter, Our dear brother Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Now, Peter's a contemporary to Paul, and sometimes like, you know, I know you're all smart and everything, but could you just give it to me on the fisherman's level? I I don't understand. He's saying that. He's hard to understand. But on top of that, he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures, to their own destruction. Paul says there are things, or Peter says, there's things that are hard to understand. I get that. But what's most interesting here is Peter says there are people who will distort what is in the Bible. And they do it because they're ignorant. They don't know. And they do it because they're unstable. That is to say there's something wrong with their head, there's something wrong with their heart, or it's both. Now, we have a tendency to say when we're reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, studying the Bible, listening to other people, we have a tendency to go, oh, you know, they're distorting it. I'm not. Right. I'm not ignorant. They are. There's a disagreement. Or, you know, I, I understand. I'm just reading it for what it is and they're missing the boat. And 
it gets a little confusing sometimes when you're trying to judge who do you listen to and how. Let me give you a, just a real quick, brief thing to keep in mind when you're listening to podcasts or watching YouTube or t- tuning into your TV or radio or whatever the case is. You need to ask when it's this, this teacher or preacher, whoever it is, do they have a Messiah complex? Now, here's what I mean by this. If I have a Messiah complex, I have two things going wrong inside of me. One, I don't see that I need to be justified the same way that you do. do. Or, or, or like my sins are maybe not as bad as yours. Or like I'm the Savior here. And so when it comes to my sins, maybe they're not as bad. Uh, when it comes to my own particular needs, well, I don't need as much. I, I don't need as much covering as you do. I'm over you. That's a terrible disposition for a pastor to have. If people come across, and, uh, you know, Lord forgive me if this ever happens or when it happens. If there's a, a graceless, self-righteous, holier-than-thou condescension, don't listen to them. Okay? Tune them out. There's a distortion in the heart or in the head. There's another problem, though, when somebody has a Messiah complex, and that is... I'm not just seeing myself over you. I feel like in some respect or another, I need to contribute to your salvation. And here's how pastors will do it. They will help to save you or cover your sin by somehow redefining your sin, calling your sin not so bad or not actually sin. And they can mean it in a really, really nice way. But let's just kind of dumb down sin because I'm going to just kind of help cover it for you. And I don't ever feel like I need to do that. You know why? Because Jesus is powerful to save. His blood covers over all. I need to be covered, you need to be covered, and his blood is powerful to cover over all. Sometimes people, well-intentioned, will just miss the boat. And I'm telling you, while you want to think, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to be objective here, and the Bible straightens you out to a point where you can understand the Bible a little bit better. I don't have anything, any illustration to use other than just to tell you from personal experience, the more I've read the Bible and studied the Bible, it's not just that I'm a better interpreter, I'm in a better place to understand the tone and the meaning of the Scripture. And this is not bragging, this is saying, the Bible straightens out the crookedness in my heart and the crookedness in my mind, and until that gets straightened out in a person's life, they will read into the Bible or see things in the Bible that aren't exactly there. Just be careful. And we have wonderful teachers, and there's wonderful teachers all over the Internet and, and podcasts, and I understand that. Just be, just be aware of the truth that people can take the Bible, and for their own purposes, to their own destruction, they can distort it. And they will distort it because of their personal character, instability, and because, frankly, of their closed-mindedness or their ignorance. Okay, so just recognize, sometimes when you come across things, you might be confusing what somebody says the book says with what the book actually says. Be careful. There's a second thing I want you to recognize, and that is when you come across something, especially in the Old Testament, you just kind of, it just rubs you wrong and you start freaking out a little bit. Recognize sometimes the book does not teach what we initially think it teaches. That is to say, sometimes you can come to a misunderstanding completely on your own. It wasn't somebody else that gave it to you. You just misread it, and it's understandable why you did uh, let me give you an example of this from the scriptures. You go over to uh, Luke chapter 24. 
There the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. It's a rather famous encounter. They're walking along. They're really downcast because Jesus has been crucified, but they have not yet heard the message that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus joins them, but he conceals his identity from them for a time, and then they explain to him why they're so upset. They say the chief priests and our rulers handed him over, Jesus, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus explains to them, the reason you're upset is you have not understood the scriptures. And the reason you haven't understood the scriptures is you've brought certain assumptions to the text that the text didn't demand. Or in accordance with your culture, you understood the Messiah this way, but the Messiah was actually another way. And I need to set you straight. Sometimes we bring things to the Bible that we shouldn't bring to the Bible. And that's why we misunderstand the Bible. Let me give you uh, an illustration of this, or maybe this has actually happened to you. Maybe you, you became a Christian, and or you just started going to church, and you thought, well, I'm supposed to be religious and everything, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start reading the Bible, in which that's, that makes sense. I'm a Christian. I'm going to start reading the Bible. So you picked up a Bible, and you started reading it from the beginning. And it was a little weird. And you weren't even through Genesis yet, and you came across all of these supposed heroes of the faith and they're married to many wives. And there's this whole bride price thing. And they're buying women. And it's just such a patriarchal, condescending women or nobody's kind of a culture. And you thought, what in the world is going on here? How can I accept the Bible? It's so backwards. And then you came across these other things like primogenitor, the whole practice of the oldest brother gets everything. Daddy dies, he owns the clan, runs the family, gets all the inheritance. The younger brothers hardly get anything. And then the, the sisters get nothing. And as soon as you made it through the end of Genesis, you thought, I don't know that I even want to keep going to Exodus because this is archaic, this is backwards, this is weird. I'm supposed to believe this is from God? We've got to slow down for a second. When you read the Bible, you have to see sometimes there are occasions when the Bible is just describing what's happening. It's not prescribing anything. There are descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Let me give you an example. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. The Bible says David slept with Bathsheba. Is, is the Bible prescribing adultery? Well, of course not. It's just laying out there. This is what happened. You have to ask. Is God promoting polygamy? Is he promoting this universal cultural experience of having multiple wives or selling women and buying women? Is that what's going on? Is God actually promoting primogenitor where the oldest son gets everything and the younger kids get hardly anything and the women get nothing? Is, Bi is the Bible promoting that? And I would say absolutely not. And the reason I would say this is you've got to read it a little bit more carefully. It's never prescribed polygamy. And when you read the stories where, you know, Abraham has multiple wives and then, you know, uh, Jacob has the multiple wives and all these things, it's almost always entirely negative. The, the results are negative spiritually, socially, psychologically, economically for the nation and the future of the nations. The results are bad. And it's presented that way. Then when you think about primogenitor, the older son gets everything you look at when God shows up in Genesis in very specific personal ways. Look at what God does. you got Cain and Abel. You might remember the story. Cain's older, Abel's younger. Who's the one that's favored? Abel. 
The second born, not the first. That's the one God uses. That's the one he chooses. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's the, lar- the, the older. Uh, Isaac's the younger. Who's the one through whom the, the nation comes? It's Isaac. God chooses the second born. You go to Jacob and Esau. Isaac fa- favors Esau, who's older. But who is it that God takes and makes a nation out of and renames him Israel? It's the second born. It's Isaac. At every turn... God is subverting the cultural expectations and norms of the time. If anything, if you're reading the book of Genesis carefully, you see that God is presenting in the book a negative view on on primogenitor and a negative view toward polygamy. These things are not being promoted. They're being subverted by God in His Word against all of the cultures of that time. Now, if I didn't know that when I was younger, which I didn't, and I read through the Bible and I read some of these things and I was like, oh, this is so disgusting. And I take my Bible and I throw it across the room and it lands in the trash can and I'm like, I'm turning my back on that forever. You know what would happen? I could have turned my back on Jesus, never came to faith in Him or turned my back on faith in Him all because I wasn't reading it correctly. Because I was reading the Bible in a superficial way. I was confusing with what I thought the Bible taught with what the Bible actually teaches. So you've got to be careful when you come across things that sort of rub your 21st century sensibilities in the wrong way. It might be that you've confused what the book says with what somebody says the book says, or it might be that you've confused what the book says with what you thought that it said, but your assumptions were incorrect. Along these lines, number three, you need to also recognize sometimes we miss what the Bible is teaching because of our own cultural blinders. I'm going to expand on that a little bit more. Going back to Luke chapter 24. You know the reason why the disciples missed Jesus? It's because they thought that the Messiah was all about the redemption of Israel. It says that much in verses 20 and 21. That was their problem. They thought the Messiah was mainly a geopolitical king. They thought that the blessing was all about Israel. And all along, God's intent was to bless the whole world through Israel. And the Messiah was so much more than a geopolitical figure. But in their culture, they had gotten it wrong. And because of their particular blinders and expectations, they missed who Jesus really was. Even though Jesus often taught who he was, they still couldn't see who he was because of their blinders. He could talk to people till they were blue in the face. He would say, hey, I'm going to rise from the dead. Nobody's expecting it. Nobody's expecting it. Even when it happens, they're still surprised. Our cultural expectations will blind us to actually what is happening or what's really going on, the truth of the matter. Sometimes you'll read something in the Bible and you'll just think this is disgusting and it's not the Bible's fault. you got blinders on. Let me give you an example of this. Slavery. Maybe you've thought this. Maybe you've heard other people say this. Well, you know, doesn't the Bible promote slavery? And they're like, no, it doesn't. And then people say, yes, it does. In fact, Ernest, weren't you there last Sunday when, when Phil Smith, who's playing the role of Paul, which, by the way, he's such a much better Paul than you are, Ernest, but that's okay, that's another story. But uh, when he was playing the role of the Apostle Paul and was quoting from Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. See? The Bible promotes slavery. You got, if you're a slave, which you're expected to obey your master in everything, if you're a slave, he doesn't condemn slavery. He says, here's how you do your slavery. The Bible condemns slavery. 
Now, when Phil Smith said that, as the Apostle Paul last week, when he got to that verse, I'm, you know, I'm, I wanted to stand up immediately and just like, okay, time out, we're going to stop this because I've got to explain to you, Paul didn't mean what you think it is that he, that he said. It's kind of like, you know, the Princess Bride. He does, he does, I don't think he means what you think he means kind of a thing. It's obvious that Paul does not mean slavery the way that we understand slavery. If you go over to the book of Philemon, there the Apostle Paul is talking to Philemon the master and Onesimus the slave, and it's obvious that their relationship with one another is more along the lines of what we would call indentured servanthood. But it is not slavery the way we understand slavery here in terms of the 17th, 18th, 19th century race-based take these people captive and they're slaves for life kind of a slavery. That's not how it was in the early Greco-Roman world. It's more along the lines of what you would call indentured servanthood. Now, were there cases in the New Testament times of people actually enslaving people like you would, you know, win the war and that, that whole group of people would be slaves? Yes. But there's slavery one and there's slavery two. Slavery one, bad. Slavery two, okay. Slavery two, indentured servant, perfectly fine. Let me explain what I mean. When we're talking about indentured servanthood, which is what Paul is talking about, which is very common, there are five things that distinguish it from what we typically consider to be slavery. Okay, first of all, when you were a slave in, in that context as an indentured servant, you were, you were not distinguished from everybody else in terms of your race, in terms of what you were wearing, in terms of your speech or your ethnicity. You go to a marketplace, you'd see somebody, you could tell if they were a slave just by looking at them. You could tell. They were like everybody else. Second of all, when you were a slave in Paul's day, you could be very well educated. You could be more educated than your master. And you could hold, you know, positions of authority like you could be a manager of a business and still be a slave and be very well educated. Number three, when you were a slave, you were paid the same as everybody else. If you're a teacher as a slave, you get paid the same as the teacher across the hall. Your compensation was the same as anybody else for that occupation. Number four... You were not expected to be a slave for life. Typically, you would be manumitted, freed by your owner in about 10 years. Typically, you know, by the time you're in your 30s, you would be freed. And, and if, the, if you weren't manumitted, if you weren't freed by your master, you could pay off the debt and free yourself. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about how some people, they were, they were saved when they were slaves. and said, don't worry about it. But if you can free yourself, set yourself free. What's he talking about? He's saying... If you're in debt, do the best that you can to pay that debt off so you'll be freed and liberated. Totally unlike slavery in America or in Europe or in Africa in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Okay, we're talking about something incredibly, totally different here. The fifth difference here is when you were a slave, you chose to be. When you're an indentured servant, you had a debt. You were, you were thinking, how can I avoid debt or how can I get out of the debt? And so willingly you became the indentured servant or the slave. You weren't taken captive. You weren't kidnapped. You weren't stuck in chains for life. It's totally different. See, back in the day before everybody was, you know, progressive and liberated and woke or where we now know that all we have to do is get the Federal Reserve to print more and more money while we don't have to work. Back in the day before people were smart like we are, they thought if I had the debt, i got to pay it off. Crazy! how it used to be. Let, let me give you an example. Let me flesh this out just to say, oh, you know, the slavery in the New Testament, that doesn't even seem like slavery at all. It actually seems like a pretty good economic situation. Suppose, suppose my son, who is working on his master's in hospital administration, he grad, he's getting married in like a couple of months or a month and a half, 
And, uh, and then he graduates, and he's looking for a job, and he wants to move up here and live right next door to mom and dad, like every good son wants to do. And so he graduates, wants to come back to town, and thinks, you know, this makes sense. Maybe I should work at St. David's as, a, you know, an assistant or something like this, maybe the chief financial officer. So he goes to Hugh says, Hugh, can I have a job? Hugh says, yes. So Nathan starts looking around, and he finds a three-bedroom, 1,200-square-foot uh, house for like $850,000. Yeah, I know. Cheap, right? And, uh, and so he finds something. It's like, man, I can't move into this. I, I need more money for a down payment. Mom, Dad, can you help? It's like, no, no, we cut the strings. And the day you got married, you're out of here. Sorry. Uh, so he goes to Hugh. And says, Hugh, I, I really want the job here. It's really hard moving here. I tell you what, would the, could the hospital give me a $50,000 advance so I have extra money for a down payment? Hugh thinks about it. And because he's smart, he knows, I need to hire Nathan. And so he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. The hospital is going to give you $50,000, but here's the catch. You have to work for us for the next 10 years. You can pay off the 50000 before then, but if you stay for the full 10 years, we forgive the debt. But if you're going to move and get another job, you've got to pay off the debt. That's it. The hospital is essentially the bank. The employer is the bank. And the employee can't move. They're locked into that job until that debt is paid off or their service time is fulfilled. That's indentured servanthood. And you think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. It's not. It could be an advantage to the person who gets into the debt, and it could be actually sort of tenuous for the person who gives up the money because let's say Hugh says, okay, here's $50,000, Nathan, come work for me. And then Nathan says, ha, 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 you can't, you can't fire a slave. And uh, what are you going to do about it? You know, I've got $50,000 from you. Like It might actually kind of be a weird relationship between the master and the servant here. That's why Paul writes to Onesimus, hey, do everything your master tells you to do. Because you've got a tendency in that situation to take advantage of the other person. Now, here's the point in me bringing all this up. Here's the point. When somebody says, oh, see, look, over here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters in everything. The Bible condones slavery. You have every right to say Not like you think it does. In fact, if you have a problem with slavery, you need to understand the New Testament world a little bit better because the borrower is a slave to the lender. You know what that means? We're a nation of slaves already. Do you notice? We're a nation of slaves and we would have a problem with what they do back then. What they did back then is what we do now, only we do it worse. Here's the point. We have cultural blinders and we start all getting judging. We throw out the book because we just, we're not, we're not seeing things. Now, in all fairness, some of you, you've been around, you've read a few things and you go, okay, Ernest, I know some of my history and I thought that in the South, back in the days of slavery, before abolition, that you had Baptists in the South and Methodists in the South and others in the South that were promoting slavery by preaching the Bible. Is that true? It's like, yes, it is. There were Baptist pastors and Methodist pastors and other pastors of other denominations, and they would go to the Bible and justify slave ownership American style by using the Bible. 
and it was wrong. You know why it was wrong? Because we understand what slavery was real about. And here's why they did it. When you start with the end in mind of how you want to live your life and run your life and do something and it would be economically disadvantageous to you to change or you're taking great pleasure in the arrangement, you, you look for ways to justify your own actions. Money talks. Pastors cave. Or maybe some of the pastors were, were slave owners. The first Southern Baptist seminary in America was founded by five guys, apparently, and these five guys, between them, they owned 20 slaves. You know why the Southern Baptist Convention was started? There's one reason, just being honest, one reason. Baptists in the South wanted to participate in missions, but they also wanted to own slaves. Baptists in the North said, we don't want missionaries on the field with slaves. And Baptists said, well, you can't take our slaves away. We're going to be missionaries with our slaves. And so in 1845 in Augusta, Georgia, I think after a big golf game, they, they had this convention. And, uh, and that's how the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. We want to be in missions and own slaves. Now, we've come a long way since then, okay? I'm just saying, people do that. They'll see what they want to see, read things into it, use the Bible as a proof text, justify their own actions. It's really pathetic when you think about it. And the blinders are so bad, right? I mean, just play this out with me for a second. Can you imagine actually arguing, we want to be missionaries to Africa and take our African slaves with us on the mission field to preach the gospel to the Africans with slaves we kidnapped in, and are now our possession. Like, woo! That's blind! That's crazy! Right? Okay, so let's, let's make a, let's make an agreement here before we even get any further into Deuteronomy or whatever. Can we agree? Let's not read the Bible with the same problem as 1845 plantation owners. Does that sound fair? Does that sound reasonable? Let's try not to read the Bible like slave owners. All in favor. Okay. Those of you who can't see, every hand went up except two or three over here. I don't know. I, I think everybody's hand went up. Okay. Now, why, Ernest, why'd you do all that stuff? Look, people still do the same thing today. They do. Let me give you an example. I, you know, I'm in this living arrangement and I'm okay with it. And I know the Bible says God is love. It's true. The Bible teaches God is love and sex is an expression of love. And God wants me to be happy because God is love. Therefore, I'm going to do what I want to do with whoever I want to do it whenever I want to do it. Let's forget about Genesis and the creation of Adam and Eve. So forget about all the teachings in the Bible about marriage and forget Christ's teaching and what the Bible says is right and wrong. Forget, let's just go to this one place and forget all this stuff. Same way the slave owners forgot all about how Pharaoh, the evil Pharaoh, had enslaved all of the Jewish people of God. Let's just forget that section and I'm going to hang out over here on this one verse that Paul says and I'm going to take it out of context and say, slaves obey your masters and everything. Same problem. If you start with the end that you want to justify, you are going to misread the scripture. Now I bring this up to say, sometimes, sometimes as Christians, we get a little judgy toward, you know, it's not just that you 
have come to the wrong conclusion. It's the way you're using the Bible. Well, guess what? We've done and do the same things. So as we preach the truth, let's not get condescending about it. Because as Baptists, we have a history of this. Just being honest. Truth and grace. We're going to preach truth, but we want to be gracious and say, hey, we're not above any of these things. Does that that make sense? There's a third thing, a fourth thing, I guess, actually, you need to keep in mind. When you run across something in the Old Testament that rubs you a little wrong, just makes you kind of retract, you need to recognize, number four, sometimes the Bible offends us because we are blind to our own sense of cultural or historical superiority. Now, let me be real careful on this one. Sometimes we read something and go, oh, that just absolutely couldn't be true. Why? Well, because in my culture, in my world, that's just craziness. That's what you actually mean. What you don't know is that you're somehow setting up your own particular culture or group or time as superior to that of other people. Let me me explain what I mean. If I were to read certain passages of the Bible about forgiveness, like Jesus says, he's asked, how many times do I forgive? Seven times. And Jesus says, 70 times seven. Woo, we like that. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Woo, we like that. When Jesus teaches, if somebody wants your, your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. That sounds fantastic. Forgive and forgive. Love your enemies. In our radically individualistic culture of, you know, that is basically shame-free, that just resonates. We love that. You take those same passages and you read them in an Arab culture or certain Asian cultures that are not shameless but but honor-oriented, and they're going to go, that's just crazy. You can't turn the other cheek. You can't let them get away with it. You can't just forgive and move on with things. The whole world would fall apart that way. And then you take the Bible and what it says about, you know, sex and sexual boundaries and all the rest. And in an Arab country or maybe a certain Asian environments or maybe in Africa, they go, yeah, that makes total sense. Love it. Maybe it's not strict enough. And then you take those passages that, that these other cultures say, yeah, that's great. And then you bring it over here and, and then the response is, oh, that's just so restrictive. That's, that's so backwards. Okay, now wait a second. Who are you and who am I to judge the Bible on the basis of where I am in the world at this moment and where I am in world history at this moment? Do you know what you're saying? You're kind of saying my culture is superior to that of my grandparents. My culture is superior to that of those in Africa. Anybody really want to say that out loud? The reason I'm rejecting this is I just think... My culture is better than yours, period. Okay. Now, it's... Maybe you want to be narrow and narcissistic. I guess that's your right. But that's how you're being. You look down your nose in condescension on other cultures simply because they're not your own. Do you really want to do that? I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's cool. And I don't think you do either. I think there's one more thing that you do need to keep in mind along these lines, and that is let's just do a little thought experiment. Suppose there is a God, and we assume there's a God. I believe there's a God. Suppose there's a God who says, I want to communicate to humankind, and I'm going to give them a book. 
if God did truly give us this book from above and it didn't come from below out of any particular culture, wouldn't you expect that that book from above, all cultures, would in different respects challenge every culture, maybe in different ways? But you would expect if the book was truly from above that there wouldn't be any culture on the face of the earth that perfectly resonated with the book. You would actually expect this book from above to challenge in different ways, different places around the world and different times around the world. Wouldn't you expect that if it was from above and didn't actually rise from the earth? The next time you feel challenged by the Bible, rather than take your Bible and throw it across the room in the trash can, forget about it, next time the Bible challenges you, maybe you ought to take that as an indication that this book just may be from above. Maybe that's the best explanation of of all this, that this book is actually from God. Now here's where we get, here's where it just really comes down to it. Here's the problem. Ernest, if you put up the next, the next slide. You got it? Is there another one? There you go. That's not really what I had in mind, but that's okay. You, the, the question that you might have is, well, if all this is true and there is this book from above and God does get to teach and correct and rebuke and all the rest, well, that might mean that I have to change my plans. Yes. You ought to be okay with that because you're, remember, you're stuck on an island. Some of us, we recognize I'm not really where I need to be and I need to be somewhere else. At a certain point, you have to trust the one who gave you Thomas's guide to practical shipbuilding. And then you follow it. At some point, you just have to trust the one who says, here's how life works. It may not make sense to you right now, but just trust me. Hebrews. Go ahead to the Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It divides even, even to the point of soul and spirit, divides even you know, bone and marrow or joint and marrow as some translations put it. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes. The thing is, when you come to the Bible, you may start out thinking, I'm going to weigh these words, and after a while, as you get straightened out, as a stability comes and an ignorance leaves, you find that those words have been weighing you. Or you start thinking about the, the truth of this, I'm going to judge this, and then after a while you start feeling judged, but it's a judgment that brings about life the same way that a, like a plumb line will judge maybe the straightness of the ship that you're building. It's a, it's a judgment and a division that ultimately leads to liberation, life, and joy. But building a ship and rebuilding a life, they're not natural, easy endeavors. But you work. Why? Or you allow the work to be done on you or through you. Why? Because you trust the book. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we, uh, we want to meet you in and through the book. We know the book is not you. The book ultimately points to the living word of God, Jesus Christ, the fullness of the revelation of God as we're told in the book. And no one has ever seen God, but God, and the one and only, has made him known to us. That's how John puts it. But the book can be trusted. 
to point to Christ and it can be trusted in every way because we believe it comes from above. It's from you. We do believe that it is God-breathed. We believe it is inspired by you. Not in a light sense, but it is actually really from above. We know it is profitable. It will benefit us if we submit our lives to it. And we know that it is good for, for teaching and it's profitable for correcting and for rebuking and for training in righteousness. And we also acknowledge we need all of these things. And, and on, on occasion, sometimes we may feel a little challenged, a little put off, but our hearts need straightening. Our vision needs correction. And, and the very fact that you come to us to rescue us and straighten us out does demonstrate that you love us. Most of us here, we don't want to take on a problem child. Some of us graciously we do. But to take on a an entire problem family or to take on all the problems of all the people of the world and then struggle and struggle against those who are struggling against you when you are the Savior and they're standing in judgment over you, the very fact that you're patient with us and that you would come to us, that you would speak to us, and that you'd reveal to us, and that you'd send your son to die on the cross for the likes of us, it, it just makes us, it ought to make us, just want to trust you even when we can't see in the moment. Why? Because it hurts. Lord, help us to trust you and give us open minds and open hearts as, uh, as we press into what your word tells us uh, in all different arenas. Make us people of grace and truth. It's not one over the other or against the other. It's two side by side, ultimately, in the person of Christ. And so, Lord, out of reverence for Christ, and out of respect for you and out of a trust that we have for you through Christ, we submit ourselves to your word. And I pray for myself and for all of our teachers that we would teach the word truly and humbly as people who are in need of a Savior and not trying to supplant one. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.